This podcast is brought to you by GuestLogix, the leading global provider of ancillary-focused merchandising, payment, and business intelligence technology to the airline industry. To learn how GuestLogix can elevate your ancillary revenue potential, visit www.guestlogix.com. Things are going to go a little different in the lounge today. Coming up, we've got an interview with Ben Baldanza, the CEO of Spirit Airlines, an interesting fellow in charge of an interesting carrier. I'm Jason Cottrell, and joining me is our resident airline savant, Seth Kaplan. <laughs> well, thanks, I, I think. <laughs> Seth, you sat down with Ben at Spirit's headquarters on Monday. I did. You know, Jason, Ben listens to the lounge, and he emailed me several weeks ago to take issue with something I had said on, on an episode back then. I, I, I said that carriers with very low costs actually have a bigger cost differential when fuel is cheap, as it is right now, I, I was talking just about the cost side of the ledger. But Ben pointed out, you know, as he said publicly, that on the other hand, a, a, a challenge for these airlines is, is what what Spirit is called fare compression. Basically, the idea that other airlines in this environment are able to charge such low fares uh, that you know, if you're Spirit or Frontier or Legion, you can't come in with fares anymore that are hundreds of dollars less than the other airlines because the prevailing fares just aren't that way. You know, anyway, he, he made a great point. Uh, and, and you and I, as you know, Jason, had been talking anyway about launching uh, CEO interviews now that we're going here on the lounge. And I said to Ben, I said, hey, you know what? Instead of just telling me, why don't you tell the listeners that, and uh, invited him on? And uh, he, he joined us this week. So with that, let's get to it. Our first CEO interview, Spirit's Ben Baldanza, in the Airline Weekly Lounge, right now. Ben, I, I was reading back through an interview that we did right here in this building back in 2009, uh, two years before your IPO. And the point then was sort of, here's this little airline, 28 aircraft yet at the time, that's making a lot of money, but people aren't really realizing that yet because you're not you know, reporting earnings. You're just kind of quietly filing uh, uh, financials with DOT. Uh, 2009, fuel was cheap as it is now. Uh, the economy was was awful back then. And you told me then that Spirit was an airline, that the whole idea was to be able to make money in, in good times and bad. And we've been through a whole cycle now that was cheap fuel, bad economy, you made money. Uh, expensive fuel, uh, improving economy, you made money. And here we are, cheap fuel, good economy. And, uh, and, and you're putting up record margins, uh, but obviously there are concerns about unit revenues declining and so forth. Um, let's talk about this this whole uh, idea of fair compression, just uh, you know, that in some ways it's become more difficult to compete precisely because the legacy airlines and, you know, and Southwest are able to uh, come in at price points that they couldn't a few years ago. Can you tell me about that? And, and has that surprised you in, in some way how this is unfolding? 
Well, thanks, Seth. No, it actually really hasn't surprised us. You know, the root of all price compression is capacity. And in fact, we now have higher cost carriers growing for the first time in a number of years, thanks in part to low fuel, which helps people make more money. Um, and so there's a lot of seats out there in the United States to be filled. And the way you fill those seats is with lower fares. The epicenter of this has obviously been in Dallas, where with the right amendment um, sunset, it's created a whole bunch of new capacity in Dallas. But even if you take that out, there's growth in the rest of the U.S. as well. So when there's a lot of seats, low fares are going to fill them. There absolutely is a question, I think, in some investors' minds about can Spirit compete in a low fare and a low fuel price environment? And the answer is, I think we're doing great. I mean, we're we're guiding to a 21 and a half to 23 percent margin year this year. I still think that, that I still think that's going to be better than most of the industry does. Um, but it absolutely does raise some apprehensions about big carriers all selling low fares, and is there a role for Spirit in that world? Yeah, and, and what do you do when, when the, the carriers that you know, people perceive as sort of more frilly than Spirit uh, are out there? You know, JetBlue has $39 fares now. Uh, obviously, it makes it harder to come, un- to come in under that. Um, is there something that you can do, or is the fact just that, uh, yes, on one hand, you're, you're making more money than ever, but the gap between you and those other competitors just has to shrink, that they just have to gain more ground than you're going to gain in, in an environment like this? Well, I don't know that they have to gain ground, but I think the margins are going to—I think the margin— um improvement is going to be smaller in a low fuel environment. The big difference though is that our airline is built to carry low fares. If you if you break out all the fares in the US into 20% bands, the lowest 20% up to the highest 20%, that lowest 20% band is about $51 average right now. The highest is at 308. Over 80% of our traffic is in that lowest 20% band. In fact, I'm kind of proud to say we probably define that band <laughs> in terms of what the price is or where it is. Um, Every airline, I mean, I started in the industry almost 30 years ago, and yield management was developed as a way for airlines to sell low fares to fill otherwise empty seats and to compete with Southwest initially and other low fare carriers. So carriers have always been good at selling low fares on marginal seats. The difference for Spirit is we can sell low fares on the whole airplane and make money. And that's why we're doing, still doing well now. That's why we're going to do well through this. And for a temporary period of sort of excess capacity in the industry with people being more aggressive on price, it's going to affect us a little bit, but it's not going to affect us that much. Yeah. This whole question about, you know, is Spirit stealing traffic from other carriers and, and whatnot? Um, so, you know, on one hand, uh, obviously, yes, you, know, you, you carry the more discretionary travelers. Uh, we understand that. But on the other hand, I mean, isn't this at some point supply and demand economics? And if there are more seats in the marketplace, that's going to bring down average fares and, and impact everybody? That's absolutely right. There's also, there's also some funny math going on with the share things because we hear this. Oh, Spirit's taking our customers. Well, it's kind of, if they're on our airplane, it's kind of, <laughs> it's a little odd, right? You're dating my girlfriend. So. <laughs> but, um, but, um, but I guess the point is the markets grow and we can show with data that the markets grow on average more than the capacity we add. So it may be a little, maybe a little bit of hubris to say that we actually spill to the rest of the industry. I mean, if you carry a hundred customers a day in a market and you have a hundred percent share, we come into the market with a lower price and now we carry 100 and the market's 200 people well lo and behold your shares drop to 50 percent and i have 50 percent so you might look at that as wow spirit has 
50%, they're clearly taking my customers. But that's conflating two issues. The issue of spirit share and you've lost traffic aren't the same thing because you have to look at the total market size and what's happened. And we can look at everywhere we've grown, the market has grown by more than our capacity. So, yeah, we carry share because you can do the math and just divide passengers by seats. Um, but in, all, in virtually all cases, the market's bigger in volume as a result of that. And that's why we're good for the industry, we think. You, uh, unlike Allegiant, um, like Frontier, which is sort of the other emerging low-cost carrier, uh, sell connecting itineraries. And I know they're not a very big part of your business. I think you've said in the past 10%, something like that. Uh, but just curious, are there any particularly interesting connecting traffic flows, You know, people connecting between interesting places in Fort Lauderdale that, that, uh, that are sort of disproportionately important, let's say, to Spirit? Like people connecting from Chicago to Boston via Fort Lauderdale? <laughs> Does anybody do that? <laughs> You'd be shocked. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we actually have, it's now less than 10% of our traffic connects. So we really are a point-to-point carrier. And one thing that's a little bit different about connections experience, we sell connections, but we don't schedule for connections. So we schedule for high utilization. We size the capacity for the local markets. But if a connection's there, we'll certainly sell that O&D. Where you see the most connections on Spirit is where the O&D is either not served nonstop or served very limited on a nonstop basis and the fares are still very high. So for customers who care about price more than time, they're willing to take a connection, even if it is circuitous, to save a little money. That's where we tend to see more of the volume. It spills to you from from the legacy airlines. Yeah, I I guess it's it or it creates the demand. You know, you never could get from New York to Cancun before at a price you're willing to pay. Now you can with a connection in Florida. So I'll go to Cancun. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Um, the Neos, the the Airbus uh, 320 family new engine options are going to start coming in, uh, in in the next few years. Those are obviously more fuel efficient uh, than your existing aircraft. Is that also a range play? Is there anything that you're going to be able to do in terms of network with those, or is that mostly about economics? It's mostly about economics. The one thing we'll do is it'll give us a, a little more gauge in a few range things. There's a couple of routes we fly today that we can't fly with the COA320 fully loaded. Like Lima, like Fort Lauderdale Lima, you do a 319s because that's the only way you can get there. Right. And Fort Lauderdale LA is the same yeah. with that, and, uh, and BWE LA. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. I mean, those wouldn't work with our A320s fully loaded with 178 going to 182 seats. Um, the Neo will be able to do those. So it's a way to increase gauge on some of the long haul things we already do. Um, but there's no there's no nonstop route that is attractive to us with a Neo that wouldn't be attractive to us without. We see it truly as a cost play, truly as an economic play, certainly a hedge against uh, longer term, higher energy prices. And we're very excited about the Neo coming. And we're also excited, though, I should say, about the fact that with our current fleet plan, we're going to be about half CO and half Neo. So it gives us the ability to sort of, uh, I guess, you know, in lower high fuel, I think we're going to do okay with that with that mix. Yeah. And the 321 is going to become an, an important part of your fleet again. Kind of interesting because back you know, when we were sitting here in 2009, you had you had four 321s. We're in, we're in the process of giving back two of them. <laughs> yeah. And here we are, and all of a sudden they're all coming in, uh, like some of some of the other ultra low cost carriers uh, around the world. You know, your, your former 
owners indigo have you know whiz air and and so forth um sort of this newfound fondness now for the 321s among ultra low cost carriers some of them anyway including yourselves uh, can you talk about that what the 321 does for you yeah the, i mean the 321 has evolved as a piece of equipment for for airbus and it's uh you know if you go back to 2007 2008 2009 uh it was a, it was an airplane that didn't have much it had range limitations for sure and but more importantly it wasn't as well well understood in the financial world. So it was generally a more expensive airplane to finance. At the time, we were leasing all of our airplanes and the lease rates were higher and such. And that made it a tougher thing. I mean, it was just a harder airplane for a lessor to take a risk on because then they would have, you know, a limited pool of people who could place it. We could put A320s anywhere. 321s, not so sure. That has absolutely changed over the last number of years. But it's not just the 320 to the 321. You see an upgaging everywhere. How many 50-seat RJs do you see flying around now, right? I mean, everything has upgaged. And Southwest is adding seats to their airplanes. And everybody has recognized that in a more energy-volatile environment, a lot of this was reaction to high fuel prices uh, initially, but in as a way to react to that is when I can get more efficiency out of the tube that I have, why not? And we see about 10% unit cost efficiency on a 320 versus a 19, then another 10% on a 321 versus a 320. So it's a screaming airplane from a, from a unit cost standpoint. And as long as we can fill it, and since we tend to be a big market player, we think we can fill it well. So in our current order, it's going to be about a third of our fleet by the end of the delivery. And, and, and that unit cost advantage takes into account uh, maybe a longer aircraft term time because it takes longer to, to board and deplane the thing. Yeah, maybe it's you know, 38 minutes instead of 34 minutes, right? <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's, you know, yeah, it's 40 more seats. But, you know, the whole poli- all the policies of spirit, some of which create controversy, like our carry-on bag policy, for example, makes boarding planes really quick quick for spirit and and people can leave quickly and you're not if you're in row 20 you're not waiting for all these people to pull these enormous bags out of the bins because not that many of them pay for that yeah uh, any thought of, of going to wide bodies at, at some moment in time especially if the you know if the market uh declines and they're available cheap uh, you know go do what what norwegian's doing or what WestJet is is doing well you know there's that's complicating and complications raise costs generally. And we have so much growth in front of us with, uh, with the fleet we're flying today um, that we don't see wide bodies in the near-term future. It's just, uh, it would be, if, if, if there were ever a world for that, it would likely be done maybe in a little different structure. Uh, but it creates complications for pilot training, for maintenance, for sparing at the airports, certainly some customer issues if you have to downgauge or things like that. Um, but the... The, the wide-body business, if you think of it as a long-haul business, is a little different business. Some of the things we do, not a lot of pitch. We don't feed you. I mean, you can buy some food, but, you know, we don't, we don't feed you. We don't really entertain you on board. That's fine for two to four hours. Eight hours, ten hours, those things start to change the balance some. And the reality is, is even higher-cost carriers, when they fly really large equipment long distance, have pretty low costs. So... You know, how do we get that 40%, 50% cost advantage on a 10-hour segment when our product isn't even up to standard for that is a much different – it's a whole different business thing than what we're doing. And we've got hundreds of airplanes of growth just what we're doing right now.
And, and I think that's a lot of why low cost long haul has been such a tough model over the years, because the, the things that make you more efficient just don't matter as much when you're only turning an aircraft around a couple times a day. Uh, and basically with long haul, the, the costs are you know, aircraft ownership. You have no particular advantage there. And fuel, same, same thing. Right. Right? And and some of the compromises that broadly, more broadly, low cost airlines ask customers to make in terms of simplicity of product and such become more of a liability the longer you travel. Do do airport costs in general just matter less than they than they once did? I mean, I know no airline CEO is going to say we don't care about airport costs um, because that's not uh, that's not a very good way to negotiate. But you know, we see you pushing more and more into obviously more you know, primary airports. You're going into Seattle, you know, places that are not. Cheap cheap places to operate. Is that just not that much of a factor anymore when you look at markets? In general, I would say, yes, that's true. Although to be fair, we fly to Latrobe and not to Pittsburgh International because of costs. And we fly to Plattsburgh instead of Montreal because of costs, right? Those are, those are cost-driven solutions where we, can believe, we believe we can attract our, our piece of the market we're trying to attract, but at a lower cost solution. That said, Um, The difference between the lowest cost airport and the highest cost airport really isn't that different in the total expenses and bigger market, more customers, a bigger total, um, a bigger total volume opportunity tends to overwhelm the airport cost. That's why we do fly in places like O'Hare and LAX and IAH and Logan and LaGuardia and things like that because we can fill big planes. We're actually a pretty low cost carrier at all those airports I mentioned because we're still getting eight to 10 turns per gate and that uses the space pretty efficiently. So airport costs certainly matter. I wouldn't want any airport operator to think we don't think that because that's absolutely true. Um, And we do bias decisions based on airport, but we're not going to necessarily be at an airport nobody wants to go to just because the costs are low. In cases like Latrobe and Plattsburgh, we think they work well for us. I want to ask you quickly, uh, just for a, a labor update, and particularly the pilots whose po- contract just became amendable uh, a few months ago. Kind of interesting just because that's the contract that they've been working under since really the last uh, noteworthy labor strike in the U.S., which was which was uh, your pilot strike back in uh, 2010. Obviously, you and your pilots have done rather well since then. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, what's what's the status of that? Have you begun talking with them about uh, about a new deal? Yeah, I mean, our deal became amendable um, the last day of July or first day of August. I'm not sure what the legal date was, but right in there. And um, and yeah, now we're in a we're in a formal process with them. And, and there's a good dialogue going on. We're, we're encouraged. Our pilots obviously do a great job for the airline. And it's a very different environment than to 2010. Um, many, uh, about half of our pilots have only been working with us three or four years. We've grown so much since the last contract that it's a whole new dynamic, but it's an exciting dynamic and a good one. And we're working through it and we feel confident about it. Yeah. And just back to the, the, the ultra low cost model, uh, you know, over in Europe, we see Ryanair now uh, chasing corporate traffic in, in a way it hadn't done in the past. I mean, it's still just doing a lot. Southwest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Sort of evolving. Uh, and, and Michael O'Leary has said, you know, if he had known that, that uh, you know, being nice to customers could be this profitable, he would have done it years ago. <laughs> um, just wondering, is, is there a day when Spirit perhaps moves farther down that line? And, and, and to be clear, look, you're in the GDSs, um, so you do certain things that Ryanair hadn't previously done. Um, but do you ever begin optimizing for corporate traffic more than you do today, or or is that just not something that Spirit's going to be doing? I think the short answer to that is no. Um, 
like 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 with the wide body answer, there is so much growth in our current model focusing on customers who pay for tickets themselves, being that price disruptor and flying relatively thin frequency, but just carrying the price traffic that really the rest of the industry either can't afford to carry or is unwilling to carry. Um, and so what, at one time, there's a, a, former, a former industry analyst who now works at a big airline. <laughs> and one time he told me when an airline CEO starts talking about business revenue as the solution to his airline, that's the time to start selling the airline. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, basic, I think basically that's right. Our goal is to just push fares down over the next five to 10 years and carry more and more people and, and drive lower and lower costs to, to be able to be profitable doing that. Um, by the time we get to the size that Ryan is today, 350 airplanes or Southwest at over 700, 800 airplanes, whatever they are, um, you probably do have to think differently then. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 53. I got to behave a little differently than when I was 20. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I get that. Right? And, but there's, but there's, that's so far in the future that, that, uh, that it would be, it would be silly for spirit to be thinking about that now. Not only silly, I think it would be dangerous for spirit to think about that now because higher, higher unit revenue customers are not the solution for spirit. Our solution is to get more lower unit revenue customers and get as many of those as we can. Yeah. Uh, we see also now as as the three U.S. ULCCs continue growing, you, of course, Allegiant, of course, and Frontier, you know, having, having gone down that path too, um, you're, you're bumping up against e- into each other uh, more than in the past, you know, logically, because at one point you were so small that, you know, that just wasn't going to happen. Um, you know, in the case of uh, Frontier, uh, I mean, in some ways it's, it's looking more and more like spirit, not surprising, obviously, as you know, a well-run airline that's run by uh by by a guy who uh helped you turn the turn this place around um how how does that change things when it's not just ulcc sort of at the margin of the industry uh you know whether you call it stealing traffic or not but you know in, in, enlarging the market um and when you are competing more against each other at least in a few markets does that change things for you and for them i think the amount of head-to-head competition among the ulccs today is limited and i think it's likely to stay pretty limited just because the opportunity is so great in other areas. We've estimated that, um, depending on how you look at it, the the ULCC sector in the U.S., if you're willing to think about that as one section of the group different than the American United Delta Southwest section, for example, um, is probably in 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 its evolution somewhere between five and 600 airplanes total. I would love to tell you that all of those airplanes are bright yellow with spirit on them. (laughs) But realistically, we can't grow fast enough. We can't get big enough fast enough to sort of take that. So just like I'm sure Ryanair would probably rather that EasyJet didn't exist, right? <laughs> right? that they had all that share. In Europe, you see Ryan with sort of more than half of the low-cost share, but then EasyJet, a pretty large player, and you have Wiz and Voiline and others that sort of fill in the gap. I don't, it doesn't seem odd to me or doesn't seem unrealistic to me that the U.S. will evolve somewhat similarly. We're the biggest player in that space today. We're growing the fastest. We have the lowest cost getting lower. So I fully expect that we'll retain sort of that position within the space, but I don't think we're going to own the whole space. You mentioned bright yellow. That's really bright yellow. <laughs> you know, it looks so beautiful when you see it in the sky, doesn't it? When you see it in an airport parked with a bunch of other planes, they all just look alike and ours stands out. We like that a lot. 
Yeah, the um, the whole ULCC model as it evolves, obviously more has gone right than wrong. That's why you're earning the kinds of margins that you are and most of the other ULCCs are too. Um, is there anything that, that hasn't worked? Anything that, that you've tried over the years that you know you, you, that you thought was going to go as well as the other things and just, just didn't go that way? Well, you know, in general, I think there's the whole customer issue of we're still catching up to the customer reality of our business model. And today in 2015, it's dramatically dramatically better than it was four or five years ago in terms of the surprises of somebody surprised they have to pay for a bag or don't get served a meal on board or don't have wi-fi or something like that um but the uh but the reality is i think that um I, I think that we're, we're still, we still feel like we're catching up to that world, that expectation management. I think in terms of the business model itself, I'm surprised how well it's gone and, uh, and how well it's working. In terms of the customer acceptance and understanding of the model, it's clearly moved a long way, but still needs to get a little further. You still see people, for example, referring to Spirit as a no-frills airline. That's crazy. We have lots of frills. We just make you pay for the frills as you go, but we're not no-frills at all. And um, and so I think there's that sort of media and customer understanding of how we're different, why we're different, and how those differences for some customers make a lot of sense. You mentioned in some ways you're, you're surprised at how well it's gone. Anything in particular that has surprised you that you didn't anticipate going into this whole uh, path of, of becoming a ULCC that, that, that did go better than you ever imagined? Well, it may sound strange that this surprises, but it surprised us just how elastic the market is, how lower fares really do drive more customers and how much, willing, how, how, how much customers are willing to do to get lower fares. Now that we charge for checked baggages and large carry-on bags, our customers carry fewer bags. They change their behavior about the trip because of our pricing structure. Um, they decide to drive to a different airport or fly at an odd time of day to get lower fares. And I think we've been continually surprised at just how powerful low fares are as a driver of, of consumer behavior. It's not just a nice thing to pay $60 instead of $100. It makes the trip possible for people, and they will do they will change their behavior and do what they need to do so they can get that $60 fare. And I would say we were surprised with that initially, and we've been continually surprised at just how dramatic the growth in volume is with low fares. Again, going back through a 2009 interview when I was reading it, you, you were pretty prescient. You kind of saw where things were going. So so, uh, so take this opportunity to ask you, yeah, uh, any, any underappreciated things that, you know, people aren't really noticing right now that you see emerging in the next several years? You know, when we're, when we're standing here uh, in, in 2020 talking, what are, what are going to be the things that, uh, that we will be uh, looking back on at that point? Well, you know, Seth, the most boring thing about Spirit and the most exciting thing about Spirit at the same time is the fact that we don't really need to change much of what we're doing at all. We just have to do what we're doing in more places. So I think if you ask me sort of what at least our world will look like in 2020, I think we're going to be bigger. We're going to have, you know, 120, 130 airplanes by that point. We'll be flying in a lot more nonstop routes, but our average frequency is still going to be about one to one and a half a day, where hopefully our fares are a little lower. Our unit cost, instead of being 5.5, will hopefully start with a four or at least to be a real low five number, you know, or something like that. But that's, that's the difference. You're not going to see us in a different space. You're not going to see us with a different airplane. You're not going to see our approach to the business radically different because we're very early in the growth cycle of this. And what we need to do is just 
just is just keep propelling this growth. And the U.S. and global industry in general, anything you see out there happening that that uh, emerging that just people people aren't noticing just in terms of the way the, the global industry is going to look? Well, I think it's a little I think it's a little interesting the way some bigger airlines are trying to sort of protect turf by not allowing, you know, the whole Middle Eastern carrier thing and stuff like that. I think it's just kind of interesting. And, you know, in general, competition's really good. If I can tell you a non-airline story for a minute, uh, about a month ago or so, I was coming into Fort Lauderdale Airport and I was and I was taking a taxi out, but the taxi line was very long. And this private driver came up and said, you know, you, you need a ride? And I said, no, what we need is Uber back in Broward County. <laughs> and it's back. And, 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 and a couple people said to me, no, we don't. We don't need Uber. And I said, absolutely we do. Because in cities with Uber, the taxis are better. And the taxis are more responsive and they're cleaner and they care more. And so competition is just a good thing. And that's, that's the way the world needs to go, right? Don't clog up all the slots at an airport so others can't play. Bring as many planes in as you can. Let everybody compete and let customers decide what they really want. We think that's where the world is going, where it needs to go. And actions which tend to be protectionist in nature might look smart in the short term, but in the long run probably aren't really good for business and aren't really, certainly aren't good for consumers. Ben, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Seth. And thanks for doing a great podcast with Jason. I'm really enjoying it. Wow. Thanks, Ben. Very kind. We'll be back next week with our usual format. For Seth Kaplan, I'm Jason Cottrell, wishing you a great week from the Airline Weekly Lounge. 